second episode of our limited series, Who New Presents the New World. I'm Mr. Rickson, and with me, as always, is Mrs. Allgood. Hello! Welcome, everyone. I, I hope that you enjoyed listening to our first episode on Mesa Verde National Park. We've got a couple of other episodes that will be coming out as part of this feed. Again, you can find these podcasts on anchor.com. You can find them also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There are two different feeds that you can find them on. Our regular Who Knew? A History Podcast feed, if you search for that. And I encourage our student listeners to check out some of those other episodes as you're working over the over the summer and maybe you've got some some time to listen to some other episodes and of course we have our separate who knew presents the new world feed as well so uh, mrs Alcott, how are you doing today i'm doing awesome um i'd mentioned before we started recording that i've had the most productive day that i've had in weeks because i got up at seven instead of like 9 30. um i just i forget how much of a morning person i am um which i'm sure very few of you listening can probably relate to especially <laughs> here in the summer um but it's been a good day i got a lot done i won a 50 dollars gift card to my favorite restaurant in fairfax corner I'm so excited. I'm having an awesome day. How are you, Mr. Rickson? I'm pretty good. I didn't get up as early as you. And I think that for, for, I think that for the student listeners, it's, it's interesting to think about the, just the fact that I think for a lot of us as teachers, we either are naturally morning people, or we just have sort of been reprogrammed at this point to be morning people. So I know that, that yes. even in the summer times, <laughs> sleeping in is, is even, that's a bit of a stretch because I still tend to get up earlier than my earlier than my wife and kind of putts around and make breakfast and read the newspaper and all that stuff before, before the day gets, uh, gets underway. But, um, but I'm really looking forward to, to this particular episode. So we're, we're keeping into our exploration of the new world, some of the indigenous peoples who lived here before Europeans. And then of course the Europeans who would later arrive in the new world. So Mrs. Olga, can you drop us into history today and kind of orient us about where and what we're going to be talking about today? Oh, you betcha. All right. The year is 1876. Ulysses S. Grant is in his last term as U.S. president. Alexander Graham Bell receives a patent for the telephone. Thousands of Plains Indians in the United States travel to an encampment of the Sioux Chief Sitting Bull in the region of Little Bighorn River, creating the last great gathering of Native peoples on the Great Plains. The Transcontinental Express arrives in San Francisco via the first Transcontinental Railroad. It took 83 hours and 39 minutes to get there from New York City. Heinz Tomato Ketchup is introduced. And in 1876, the Canadian government passed the Indian Act, which defines how it interacts with the 614 indigenous tribes, detailing everything from reservations to how indigenous groups would be allowed to practice their customs and religions in the newly independent Canada. Now, now wait a second, though. Most of our student listeners are probably wondering why we just ended with a fact on Canadian history in an AP US history class. But I think that it's important for the students to remember that as we talk about the indigenous peoples of the Americas, before Europeans arrived here, 
America as we know it, right? North and South America were just these two giant land masses with indigenous people living in, in every corner of, of the continents, both North and South America. So can you give, a, give us a little bit more as to sort of where we're going to specifically focus today, sort of geographically? Yeah, so I think it's really important to remember, too, like when we're looking at uh, this period of pre-Columbian, so pre-1492 America, Canada and the United States aren't really a thing. Um, and the indigenous groups that kind of live in some regions of North America are divided up between what is now Canada and the United States. Um, so we're focusing on the Northwest tribes and indigenous people in uh, the United States, which our northwestern coast co like coincides with Canada's southwest coast so we're sort of in this coastal mass from like Alaska down to like northern California which is going to encompass much of British Columbia and part of the Yukon territory uh and what is today Canada so i really don't know much about the northwest or northwestern pacific tribes and i had to do a, quite a bit of research to just kind of get my footing on this so I took quite a quite a cool deep dive into Wikipedia. I don't know if you've ever done that as well, uh, either you, Mr. Rickson, or our listeners. When you just kind of Google something like really vague, like Northwestern Indigenous people, and then you're like, okay, got to start somewhere. And I just found myself like opening like 50 different tabs into different stuff. So it was awesome. So to give you a bit of context of North America prior to 1492, North of Mexico, there could have been anywhere between 1 million to 10 million people. Uh, and according to the AMSCO textbook, which is the the primary text that we're going to use in APUSH throughout the year, these societies were typically smaller and, quote, less sophisticated than those in Mexico, like the Aztec, the Maya, even the, the people of Mesa Verde that we discussed in our last episode. And this is likely due to how slow the cultivation of corn or maize spread northward from Mexico. Some of the most populous and complex societies in North America, like the peoples of Mesa Verde, had disappeared by the 15th century. So the people of North America that we're looking at today tend to live in semi-permanent settlements within groups that rarely exceeded 300 or so people. And typically these men are going to hunt for game, while women gathered and planted crops like corn and beans. So geographically speaking, every region of North America was settled all the way from like the icy caps of Canada, where the Inuit people lived, to the Great Plains and way out to both of the coasts. But I digress. I'm just giving some context. Today, we're going to be looking at the people uh, of the Pacific Northwest. And like I said, a, a lot of what I knew of this particular region is just from like random pieces of artwork that I've just kind of glazed over in some museums and from the Twilight series that I read back in my middle school days. If you haven't read Twilight, I don't know that I would encourage it. It's actually not that good, <laughs> but I loved it when I was 13. Okay. <laughs> but it does focus on a particular tribe of people from the Pacific Northwest. But anyway, in our AMSCO textbook, Mr. Rickson, there are only four sentences dedicated to these like 614 groups of people, which is pretty bonkers. So our book, all that it gives us is 
Along the Pacific coast, from what is today Alaska to Northern California, people lived in permanent longhouses or plank houses. They had a rich diet based on hunting, fishing, and gathering nuts, berries, and roots. To save stories, legends, and myths, they carved large totem poles. The high mountain ranges in the region isolated tribes from one another, creating barriers to development. And that's all we get! That's it! That's so frustrating. There is like some cool, rich history here in the Pacific Northwest. But I, to be fair, the, the AMSCO textbook that we use is deliberately like very condensed to help our students prepare for the AP exam. So you just don't get a lot of detail. You just kind of get what you need when you're studying for the exam. But I don't like this description of the Pacific Northwest. It's It's so vague for what is out there. Um, so throughout our episode today, I'm going to be coming back to this dis- description to either support what it says, but mostly to challenge it. It's not totally true. Now, one of the things that the students have, have possibly done in other historical contexts or other history classes is oftentimes when we talk about regionalization and when I say that, I mean, so focusing on maybe the Pacific Northwest versus the American Southwest versus the Great Plains or the Great Lakes regions, we oftentimes determine their similarities and their differences, right? We're doing a comparison. Now, are there any characteristics in the research that you found that are common among the various tribes of the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Pacific Northwest encompasses people from the southern coast of Alaska all the way down to northern California. So this is a huge swath of land that encompasses about 4,000 miles in length. For context, it would take about three days and 15 hours to drive without stopping. Special thanks to Google Maps and Mr. Allgood for helping me figure out how many days go into 87 hours. So it's a pretty massive amount of land, but we are going to see quite a bit of similarities that these groups of people develop, mostly because the the climate and the habitat is pretty similar in most of this area. So their economies are largely reliant on aquatic resources, particularly salmon. Um, That's a huge part of the diet of these people. It's also a major cultural symbol, and it shows up quite a bit and uh, totem representations. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Northwest natives are, quote, the outstanding exception to the idea that hunting gathering societies are characterized by simple technologies and sparse possessions. So take that, and Sko. This region also has plentiful resources, mainly fish and lumber, and it also possesses a really unique coastal climate that brings plenty of rain and moderate temperatures, allowing for a reliable growing season. So if you remember from your ninth grade world history class, food surpluses are essential in creating complex societies. So because not everyone needs to farm in order to survive, we start to get classes of non-farming people that can do other things like become artisans or priests or chiefs or I don't know, hairdressers and stuff. I mean, probably not hairdressers in pre-Columbian Northwestern society, but you get the idea. This is called social stratification and uh, social stratification. Okay. So the traditional cultures usually had a ruling elite that controlled rights to a communal property. So it's actually very similar 
to the feudal system in medieval Europe, where nobles held certain land and gave peasants the right to farm it for a share of crops and a right to the peasants' labor or their fighting power should competing nobles go to war with one another. In this particular scenario, we call these groups of people in the Pacific Northwest house groups as opposed to noble, and we'll get more on that later. And, you know, this doesn't sound less sophisticated to me. We're looking at a particularly unique and sophisticated civilization here, which is really cool. So these house groups had titles to important resources like sites for fishing, hunting, and living. And they also had privileges uh, to use particular names and songs and dances and totemic representations and crests, which is also very similar to like noble groups of medieval Europe. If you have like a particular like family crest or you have certain land with boundaries and other nobles live next door and you're kind of rivals. We see a very similar thing here in the Pacific Northwest. And this is finally going to bring us to the topic of today's episode, the potlatch. So obviously our student listeners saw in the title of this episode that that's sort of the main focus that we're going to have today. But Mrs. Allgood, what exactly is a potlatch and why why did we pick it? Why is it so significant to the to the tribes of the Pacific Northwest? Okay, so this that's a great question. And that's exactly where my Wikipedia deep dive took me. I started with something vague, tribes of the Pacific Northwest, and then I was kind of looking at like the highlighted words in Wikipedia and I kept seeing the word potlatch 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 I was like that is a weird word what the heck does that mean so I clicked on it and I was like wow this is so cool and interesting so my easy simple answer to your question what is a potlatch it's like what you and I Mr. Rickson probably know as a powwow here in eastern Virginia it's very similar to that so it's a highly organized informal celebration of something really important happening in the community but in the northwest It's a bit different and has its own unique characteristics. So each group north of the Columbia River in northwest Washington state practices this custom of potlatch. The word actually comes from the trade jargon used in the Tinglet language, which means to give. So it involved the invitation of one house or houses plural, whose members were received with great formality as guests and witnesses of the event. So it's a social, political, and economic event. It's very integral to the tribes of the Pacific Northwest. So potlatches, it involves the invitation of another house or houses whose members were received with great formality as guests and witnesses of the event. So they're used to mark a wide variety of transitions in a particular community, like marriages, the building of a house or a public building, funerals for the chiefs, the stowal of adult names. Now, Mr. Rickson, I'm not Catholic, but you are. I think there's something similar to this in the Catholic tradition as well. Well, I'm I'm thinking of sort of two things. So we think of how so frequently in, in scripture where 
someone changing their name has great significance in terms of their their conversion. I'm thinking of, of course, St. Peter, whose name was Simon, and he then goes by Simon Peter. Of course, one of the most important is Saul, who changes his name from Saul to Paul. So again, that's another important uh, transition. But for again, for our student listeners who are, are Catholic or have been in Catholic schools, you probably... Um, have friends or you yourselves, when you were confirmed, you took a confirmation name. So you you identified a saint with whom you that you've had some kinship with or, or some relationship to. Uh, for example, my confirmation name is St. Michael the Archangel. Um, that was one that was very important to me. So I, I think it's always interesting to find these these parallels in, in various cultures. So it's, I, I think it's important to recognize that we have a great deal of shared humanity and culture, whether you're a uh, Catholic in Northern Virginia, or you were a uh, Tlingit Native American hundreds of years ago doing a potlatch. That is so awesome. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, and, and likewise, I kept seeing so many parallels between these groups of people and things that I've learned about throughout my uh, career as a history teacher and history student. So yeah, along with adult names, these occasions were also used to mark the bestowal of titles of nobility, crests, and ceremonial rites. One of the coolest kind of macabre things that I saw, I I like creepy stuff to my listeners. I I love it. Anyway, so in the Waukesha and Salish regions, which is on Canada's southwest coast in British Columbia, a chief would give a potlatch like as he was dying, like right before death in order to recognize his successor. And I, I know that I'm just having too much fun with this, but I keep seeing it as a deathbed party. And I'm like, how cool is that? (laughs) But trivial events were also used as a reason to throw a potlatch because I mean, first of all, it's a party. Like people want to go to these things. But like the purpose of the potlatch, so like what you're celebrating, it's not the most important part. So the whole purpose of the potlatch celebration is more of a validation of claims to a social rank. So kind of showing how important you are and your family and your house is rather than the actual event that you're celebrating. So they were also used as a face-saving device by people who suffered public embarrassment. Uh, So if you, like, did something really dumb and you had a lot of money, you could throw one of these parties and people will respect you again. Or it was also used as a means of competition between different rivals in a social rank. So, yeah. So some of the traditions that you might see at one, there usually are a lot of speeches about, you know, why we're all gathering reaffirming the hosts and the guests like special social status there the main part though would be the giving of gifts to special guests like the main part that we're doing is gift giving there's also plenty of song and dance and feasting they eat so much food at these and then finally the raising of a totem pole that is a huge huge part of the potlatch and usually things would be added extra totems would be added to the totem pole in order to mark whatever event that they are celebrating. So the word totem, quick sideline on totem poles. I went down a cool rabbit hole here. The word totem actually comes from the Algonquian word odudum, uh, which means kinship group, which explains why they're 
closely tied to these house groups in the Northwest. So each house had their own unique carvings and crests that would be displayed. Totem poles were used to commemorate the events celebrated by the Patlatch, but were also used as welcome signs for villages, mortuary vessels for the remains of loved ones. Cool. And my personal favorite, uh, as a means to publicly ridicule someone. Like, Mr. Rickson, can you imagine being that one guy in the village that has this huge elaborate totem pole that was constructed for the sole purpose of making your life difficult? That sort of reminds me, Mrs. Allgood, of for any of the student listeners, if your parents ever complain about maybe you haven't mowed your lawn in a little while and you feel like the bad neighbor because all of your neighbors have mowed their lawn. So maybe that's the same sort of parallel as that your yard brings shame to your house. I have have definitely felt that as an adult where I go on a walk and I walk by my neighbor's yard, which is, you know, nicely mowed and clean. And then I walk back to mine and it is just looks like giant tall grass. And I just think I should probably clean that up. That is the most suburban thing (laughs) I've ever heard in my life. All right. Um, So anyway, uh, guests to these potlatches would be given gifts and a boatload of food. And it was expected that any food that was left uneaten at these parties would be taken home, which is like every family occasion that I've ever been to in the South. Like you bring your own Tupperware to these parties and take it back with you. Gifts were distributed by rank order. So the more noble you were, or the more elite you were, the cooler your gift would be. And the lesser down you were, you still get something really nice, but it's just not as nice and valuable as as the nobility. Now, you said that you went down some internet rabbit holes in doing your research. And, and I would imagine that in doing that, you came across some of the specific kinds of gifts that might be exchanged at a potlatch. So What are some of the major gifts that you came across in your research? Yeah, so um, after the fur trade in kind of Canada and New France started in the 17th century, great quantities of European manufactured goods were available, and those were the most preferred gifts to give to the more elite people. Um, But then, before them, Gifts were usually handmade types of things, so canoes would be among the most valuable things to be given, as well as tools or clothing or decorative pieces. But in fact, the potlatch reached its most elaborate development among the the southern Quakoodle. Please forgive me. That is an abbreviated form of the original (laughs) Quaka Waka group, which I am definitely not pronouncing correctly, among the British Columbian coast from 1849 to 1925, where it's going to be mostly manufactured stuff given, but its origins, as we've mentioned, are much, much earlier from this period. So yeah, hosts were expected to really shell out for the potlatch. So the size of the gatherings and the types of gifts that were given reflected the rank of the host. And uh, the efforts of the host in their house were exerted to maximize generosity and show their wealth and their rank. So it's a major form of both hospitality, but also kind of this political way to show, look at how important my family is to this community. Uh, Potlatches also gave wide publicity to the social status of the host. 
which would give them reputations for being particularly generous or particularly stingy. So I, remember, hundreds of people come to these gatherings. And if you're hosting one of these, you want your guests to go back home to their house and tell their friends, yeah, those Joneses, they throw a great potlatch. They're really rich and awesome. And we don't ever want to get on the wrong side of them. So it's a pretty important cultural and political tool. But for our intents and purposes for this episode, uh, the potlatch is really cool because it encompasses almost everything that Northwestern Native cultures tend to value. And it embodies how socially organized these people were. It represents so many important cultural and economic symbols, like the salmon served at feast to the unique carvings on the totem poles. It was, and it still is, an integral part of the identity of Northwestern peoples. Now, I want to come back to the beginning of our episode when you dropped us into history, because you you cited... Canada, and specifically the year 1876. Now, you said that at this point, Canada has become an independent country, and it passed what's called the Indian Act. And as a history teacher, I have a bad feeling, to quote Star Wars, I have a bad feeling about this. I I suspect that this this particular (laughs) law is going to be quite harmful to the Native peoples of, of Greater Canada. Yeah, Mr. Rickson, I'm afraid you are correct. So Canada becomes an independent country from Great Britain in 1867. Um, And they're very quick to kind of take over and unify Canada, whereas the British really hadn't made that effort. And we see efforts to kind of expand and we see a bit of imperialism going on. So in 1885, the Canadian Parliament added an amendment to the Indian Act to forbid the practice of the potlatch. And it was in effect, in effect until 1951. Wait, excuse me. It, so, it, was in, it was in effect until 1951? Yeah, that is not oh, that dear. long ago. What do you think? All right. So, yeah, First Nations, as Native Americans are called in Canada, First Nations, they saw the law as an instrument of intolerance and injustice, second only from taking land from their peoples. It's seen as the extreme to which Euro-Canadian or white Canadian society used its dominant dominance against Native subjects in British Columbia, particularly where this was practiced. Uh, but the law was often ignored and circumvented. As we noted earlier, the Quaket shoot, the Quakoodle potlatches, uh, they reached their height of development through the 1920s. So this kind of golden age of the Quakoodle potlatch happens when this law is in effect. But until 1921, which I don't know why that is the date, but that is, uh, very few arrests and charges were made under the Indian Act. But then in 1921, a raid happened on a village in British Columbia, which led to the arrest and charges made against 45 people. 20 men and women were sent to prison for several months as a result of just practicing their culture. Uh, And I found this really interesting, too, speaking of parallels, because in the 1920s, the United States also experiences this period of extreme white American nativism and intolerance. Uh, And there are also a few laws that were passed in the U.S. in the 1920s that made it illegal for Native Americans to practice certain religions and customs. So I just found that to be fascinating. So I guess one of my larger questions, though, is why would the potlatch be specifically banned? I mean, from everything that you've told us in this in this episode, 
it sounds like the potlatch was not, I mean, it was a religious ceremony in many ways, but it was also a feast and a party. So why is it that feasts and parties would be specifically banned? So the Canadian prime minister at the time, John A. Macdonald, he didn't see the potlatch as, quote, valuable or appropriate and encouraged the band to, quote, unify the Dominion of Canada and lead the Native peoples to a healthier European mindset. You know, I had a hard time typing that. I had a harder time saying that. <laughs> ugh, ugh, I don't like that. Anyway, so we're seeing quite a bit of social Darwinism and imperialism at play here. And for our students, this is stuff we're going to pick up on in class uh, much later in the year when we do cover the 19th century. But it's basically this idea of cultural exceptionalism, where your culture is better than someone else's, and it's your duty to civilize people and make them more European, because that's clearly the better option in, in this mindset. So it definitely parallels uh, what's going on in the United States at the same time in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So the Canadian government correctly saw that the potlatch was the heart of a non-Christian cultural system that was opposed to colonization. So it was in direct opposition to everything that the newly independent Canada wanted to achieve. Also, culturally, it's very foreign to the Protestant capitalist European identity. So the potlatch was seen by Euro-Canadians as a, a ritual that basically gave away almost everything that was hard earned by a family or a particular person. Like, why are you giving away all of your worldly possessions? you worked hard for that. Why don't you just keep it and better yourself? And they, so they kind of saw this as a sign that the indigenous people were quote unstable. It's, it's so different from what these Euro Canadians are used to. So banning the potlatch was a way to forcibly assimilate people into Canadian society. But I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. As a historian, there are so many things that are frustrating about the banning of the potlatch. I mean, as we mentioned, it's a party. It's a very peaceful, social, religious, cultural, economic, just part of these people's society. But there's other things that, that kind of stem from this. I mean, not only are people arrested for practicing their beliefs, but also potlatch regalia and totem poles were usually confiscated by the white authorities. So they they didn't just throw this stuff away. A lot of the uh, regalia and the totems that they confiscated were put or sold into museums around the world, which brings us to a lot of interesting history questions. Like, how can you make something illegal and call it savage, but then profit on its historical significance? Also, a lot of these items are still in museums today across the world. I've seen them at the Louvre. Should they stay in the museum for cultural significance, or should they be repatriated or returned to the original people that they came from? Also, at what point do culturally or religi religiously significant personal items become art when it never it was never meant to be just something pretty to look at? So there are just so many questions to think about, and I encourage our listeners to consider these and see where your own ideas and opinions take you on these questions. It's stuff that we do confront quite a bit throughout U.S. history and, and world history as a whole, but I digress. Alas, the ban was finally lifted in 1951, as we mentioned, and nations on the coast began to openly potlatch again. It was definitely going on in secret throughout all this time. 
the Quado people continue this tradition today. But however, the Indian Act is still in force today. It's still on the books. But 20 major amendments were made in 2002 alone that are basically used to solidify the rights of First Nations. So there's quite a checkered past here between Canada and its its First Peoples, and that's not totally uh, different than what we see here in the United States and our own difficult past with Native Americans. No, I think that's a really good point to, to close on there, Mrs. Allgood. I think that one of the things that we will be exploring with the students is, especially as the United States becomes an independent nation and it begins interacting with the rest of the world, I think we're going to find that the U.S. shares a lot of similarities with the way that Anglo or white Americans treat non-white Americans. And I think certainly the U.S. certainly has a, a very troubled past when it comes to the treatment of enslaved people and African Americans, obviously with the indigenous peoples. But that's not exclusive to the United States. And I think we'll see, you mentioned imperialism We'll see during the age of imperialism, which many of our students studied as part of Euro last year as sophomores, I think you'll find that there are some pretty clear parallels to the way that not just the U.S., but I think all Euro or Anglo nations viewed people of color and sort of their and, and sort of the way that they dealt with their culture and the way that they dealt with their traditions and I think to your point, trying to trying to determine basically whose culture is best, which is very, very dangerous. But I think that I think that this is a, this is a good window, I think, into not just the culture of a particular people, but how culture can be can be criminalized in, in a way to sort of create dominance between one culture versus the other. So I, I really thank you for going down the, the internet rabbit hole today, as you said, and kind of going into some different avenues with, uh, with totems. And of course, with our, with our main topic, which was, which was potlatches. So thank you very much. You are absolutely welcome. I had so much fun researching this episode today, and I learned a lot. But, uh, you know, we're not quite ready to end this episode yet, Mr. Rickson. I think it's time for the fact off, and I think you should go first this time. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm always, I always enjoy the fact off. It's always neat to, again, go down my own internet rabbit hole when I'm doing the research for this, when I'm the, when I'm the, uh, the narrator, if you will, or the interviewer. So, of course, a lot of this episode focused on the potlatch ban, and you mentioned at the end that not unlike the United States, Canada has a troubled history when it comes to Anglo-Indian relations, and, and a lot of it is similar to what the United States sees. Forced relocations, wars and conflicts, laws that ban elements of Native culture, schools that are built and designed to, quote, civilize Native children. There, there's a lot of very difficult parallels. But as you said, Canada has gone to great lengths to atone for its sins when it comes to their relations with Native Americans. And chief among them is, is what you said, using the term First Nations, which is the term that, that Canadians use to describe the indigenous peoples of Canada. There have been many amendments, as you said, to the, to the Indian Act that have offered financial compensation for land use. The term First Nations has been a lot more commonplace in, in, in Canadian culture. And we're actually recording this episode on June 23rd. Just two days ago, 
June 21st in Canada is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And they actually chose June 21st for a really important cultural reason. So June 21st is the summer solstice, which in Native American culture, not just to the Pacific Northwest, but to other tribes, is incredibly culturally significant, whether it relates to farming or agriculture or spirituality. So I do think that that is, it's, it's a path to progress. And I think it's great to see that the, that the Canadian government has worked closely with Native peoples to, to sort of get, to sort of atone for its sins and try to find a new, a new and better future. Well, Mr. Rickson, I think I can speak for both of us when I say happy belated Canadian National Indigenous Peoples Day. Same to you, Mrs. Allgood. Same to you. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. My next fact is kind of a stretch, but uh, I had to tie in the Twilight series. Like, what can I what can I tell you? So if you've ever read or seen the Twilight series, you'll know that the vampire clan, the Cullens, are able to live in Northwest Washington, you know, Forks, Washington, because it's so rainy. Vampires can't go out in the sun. So why is it rainy in Northwest Washington, you ask, Mr. Rickson? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) It's because... It's because this particular part of the coast is directly under the jet stream. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a fast-moving river of air that encircles the northern hemisphere right near the latitude of the U.S.-Canadian border. So whenever the stream swoops a little south, it causes low-pressure systems, which produces heavy rain and high winds that intensify. So this occurs from the Gulf of Alaska to the coast of Washington. And if you remember, the native groups of the Pacific Northwest are able to create this huge food surplus because they get so much rain in this region. So this is such a cool fact. We got twilight, we got meteorology. You're welcome for the knowledge. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, your last fact focused on something that you are interested in, in pop culture. And I'm going to focus on one that's important to me and that is sports, but I'm going to take this in a little different direction. So You mentioned the cultural appropriation of totems. And in fact, one of the facts that you're going to highlight in a minute is specifically related to that. And for the listeners who are sports... Don't spoil it. I won't. I won't. So (laughs) for the listeners who are sports fans, obviously one of the big debates right now is around team names and logos that have frequently used caricatures and racist imagery around Native Americans the Washington Redskins, the Atlanta Braves, the Cleveland Indians. But in the Pacific Northwest, the logo of the Seattle Seahawks is actually connected to the Pacific Northwest tribes. It's actually based on the transformation mask of, and forgive me on the mispronunciation here, of the <laughs> Kwak Waka Wak tribe. And the logo... Thank you. And the logo... <laughs> was actually designed by a Native American artist, Marvin Oliver, who was of Quinault and Isleta Pueblo heritage, submitted the final design for the Seahawks logo when they entered the National Football League as an expansion franchise in 1976. So I I hope that, again, this is another example of not just appropriating culture, but actually working with Native peoples to make 
a design that is not just respectful and representative of the culture, but is a celebration of the culture. So I've always loved the Seahawks logo because it is so authentic. I mean, it looks like something you'd find in the Pacific Northwest. And so it was, it was somewhat reassuring to read that it was actually designed by someone of, of Native American heritage. That is absolutely awesome, especially considering the cultural appropriation that we do see uh, in so many other sports ball teams. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> I, I, sports. Ah! <laughs> um, also, secondly, another fact, which brings our topic back to the greatest city in the world, Cleveland, Ohio. I bet you didn't even mean to do that, Mr. Rickson. Everything comes back to Cleveland. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> All right. So my last fact. Uh, so as you mentioned, unfortunately, totem poles and native imagery are widely victims of cultural appropriation today. Uh, so people tend to forget that totem poles were an integral part of the longstanding complex peoples of the Pacific Northwest. So for example... An ever-present convenience store has its origins in the cultural appropriation of totem poles. The founder of these stores brought a souvenir totem pole, first of, you, first of all, they shouldn't be souvenirs, and placed the totem pole outside of this original store and called it the U-Totem store because customers toted away their purchases. The company eventually franchised and decorated their stores with Inuit-themed motifs. It was uh, pretty racist. Uh, and in 1946, the company renamed their convenience stores, not because it was offensive or anything, but to reflect their new operating hours, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. In case you need some help, I'm talking about 7-Eleven. Yeah, it's it's always, I think it, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing for us to to grapple with when you see so much Native American imagery used, as you said, not just culturally appropriated, but like used as souvenirs and like tchotchkes, for lack of a better term. Um, so I hope, if nothing else, what the student listeners have gotten, have taken away from this today is um, this is somebody's culture and it's it's something that is deeply personal and important to them. And it has spiritual connotations and religious connotations. And, and I hope that this episode did two things. One, I hope that it helped the students understand the peoples of the Pacific Northwest, but also sort of setting up a bit of a preview for the class about this difficult relationship that has formed over the, over the centuries between the, the Europeans who come to the New World and the Native Americans who already inhabited it. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we've posed quite a few interesting topics or food for thought. Um, and as I mentioned, I got so much more out of the research from this episode that I I thought that I would. And it opened quite a, quite a few windows in my mind and offered a lot to think about. So thank you all for listening to our episode today. I hope you learned something really good. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, you are able to find our podcast on anchor.fm. Spotify and Apple podcasts on our regular feed or our who knew presents the new world feed. Thanks so much you guys for listening as always. So again, this is our second episode of our five part series and we will be back with the next couple of episodes of our limited series. Who knew presents the new world. Take care, everybody. Bye.